This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, good, uh, good morning. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, so maybe a few words about uh, a way-seeking mind talk. It's a, it's a talk that's a style of talk that's been given uh, historically for a long period of time in the Soto tradition. And it's really just a story of how someone got to the spot that they are in their practice. Um, maybe for the purpose of uh, inspiring people and just because it's curious and interesting to see the diversity of what brings us all to where we are. And of course, it's just, it's only a story because every time we tell it, we tell it differently because we would emphasize different things. So this is the story I'm going to tell is just a story. <laughs> it has some relationship to reality, but probably an extremely tenuous one. And absolutely no other person would tell the same story. So it's, it's really um, not real, not real, but, re but related to this beautiful reality. Uh, so um, as Andrew said, I'm Australian, but I've been overseas for a long time. Uh, in my 20s and late teens, I, uh, similar to probably many of you and many other people, I was involved in um, martial arts, uh, yoga, tai chi, uh, quite a lot of environmental activism and um, I ended up actually uh, s establishing a permaculture farm for 12 years and uh, through all of that there was a kind of a searching that didn't qu I hadn't quite found what I was looking for but all of those things were wonderful for me and all of them informed and still inform who I am. But uh, for reasons unknown, someone gave me a copy of DT Suzuki's Introduction to Zen Buddhism. And I was reading that. I hadn't really done any formal meditation practice at that stage. And I came across a koan that some of you may know. It's a very short story of a woman who has a goose in a glass bottle. She raises a, a gosling in a glass bottle and when the goose is grown she wants to get it out of the bottle. And the question is how does she get it out without breaking the bottle? I had just never come across something like that. And I knew it was significant. It was not, it was not some just story that you know some there was no mechanical solution to this problem there was this this short very cryptic story was pointing to something essential and i didn't know what it was but i was very compelled by it it just gripped me who knows why but it gripped me 
and uh, I looked up Zen in the phone book and ended up coming up to Sydney. I was in Far East Gippsland and uh, sitting there did a Zazen Kai and very quickly realized this is what I've been looking for. This is, this is really what I want to do now. I was in my uh, early mid thirties. So I began commuting up to Gorex Run and also down to Melbourne. Gorex Run is outside of Sydney and down to Melbourne for sessions, um, two or three a year. I had young children, so it was a little complicated managing that. Um, as the children grew older, they were able to, my oldest daughter was able to actually like come to session and then look after her younger brother. And uh, sometimes other people in the retreat, part of their practice would be to help with the childcare. So it kind of uh, got a little easier as they got older. So I did that and did koan study with Sabana Bazagi, my first teacher for five or six years. And uh, then in 2001, I moved to the United States. I'd married an American and we were going to be there just for a, a short number of years. Um, and I started studying with uh, Danielle Taranio, Diamond Sangha teacher in California. And uh, circumstances changed and we ended up being in America much longer than originally intended. So I ended up studying with Danielle for six years and was authorized to teach in the Diamond Sangha in 2009. And in 2010, uh, my marriage ended and it was a very traumatic period of my life. I had two children with Australian passports and one with an American passport and there wasn't a way to unify them. So I was in a very, very difficult situation where I had to pick countries and pick family. And uh, I would say the most harrowing experience of my life, but in retrospect, has turned out to be by far the most transformative and beneficial experience for me maybe not for all the other people involved in the, that unfortunate um, unfolding, but uh, for me, it was an, an extraordinary opportunity to, to figure out how, how, to, how to survive something that felt unsurvivable. So at that time, even though I was authorized to teach in the Diamond Sangha, I was really not well enough, emotionally strong enough to be teaching and there was a Zen center, Soto Zen center in Santa Cruz called Santa Cruz Zen center. And I was familiar with that Zen center. I would often go there on Wednesday nights to listen to talks. Uh, the teacher there, Catherine Thanis, who has since passed away. I was close, close with her and really loved her very much and respected her as a, as a Zen teacher. So I was familiar with that community, but not identified with it as my own, but I went there you could say I almost sort of limped in, uh, really not very strong, really feeling very vulnerable and just sort of said, I, I, I need community. I need Sangha. Can, can I, can I just join in with you guys? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I was very much embraced. So that was wonderful. Very cared for uh, as I slowly kind of pulled myself back together. And that's where I met my teacher, Kokyo Henkel Osho, in the Soto lineage, who later was to ordain me. And, and being in that community was a great example 
of how sometimes we don't need gentle, soft love. Sometimes we actually need kind of a kind of um, fierce sort of love. And I felt I received a fierce kind of love. And I felt it in the sense that my teacher there kept on giving me jobs to do and kept on giving me responsibilities that forced me to kind of pull myself back together, forced me to get back up on my feet and to find my strength again. And even though it might have, it might sound hard to think of that as, as really very true compassion, it was the most compassionate thing anyone could have done for me. And uh, I gained my confidence both in myself and in the Zen practice again, which temporarily had got a little wobbly. Confidence in myself had become a very wobbly. Um, confidence in the practice had got a little, got a little wobbly, and, and it, it that that brought it back together. And so I really developed a deep appreciation of the Soto tradition. It was, uh, I felt very blessed to have been welcomed into that community. And as someone who did have a background in koan study, I was invited to teach uh, or lead a weekly kind of koan group, which is still going, which I don't know how many years it is. It must be maybe seven years. We've been meeting every week for all these years. Now, of course, it's on Zoom and I'm in Australia and they are in America. But uh, that group continues to this day. And uh, that was a wonderful thing for me, a form of continuity where I could bring my diamond sangha background into the Soto tradition um, in a different way, not in the way that we normally would do koan study. The, the group was not about doing presentations or passing koans. It was about letting them work on us during the week and then just sharing what came up while we contemplated the koans, just sharing what came up for us and uh, doing that together. So that group still meets on Saturdays every week. Uh, I had a couple of notes. I want to just have a look at something here. There's um, a line from Chittamatra Mind Only Teachings uh, that I like. The only thing we can know is mediated by the mind. The only thing that we can know is mediated by the mind. One effect of that thought is to deeply understand that we don't know anything. Every experience we have, every thought we have is an approximation of something that we also don't know. It's not even an approximation of something that somebody else knows. In a conventional sense, often we can say we have an approximate understanding of something. Maybe you could say in science, but there is a sense that there is a specialist that actually knows and we have some approximate knowledge of it. That is true from a conventional perspective. But from an ultimate perspective, we only have an approximate knowing of something that nobody and that can't be known. It can't be known. The universe is so profoundly interconnected. It's just not possible to be known. And uh, that is a teaching that sits with me a lot. And I think it has cultivated in me a kind of, well, I hope, <laughs> 
it has cultivated in me a little bit of humility, uh, a lot of curiosity, and a lot of openness. Because whatever approximation I have about reality, somebody else has a different approximation, and theirs may be more interesting or more useful approximation than mine. So just contemplating that uh, everything we experience is mediated through these senses, the, the five conventional senses and the mind sense organ, it's mediated through those. And we don't really know anything. This has been a very important practice, practice for me, humility, curiosity and openness. I think you see this too in a lot of um, in artists, you know, creative people often have these same same characteristics. Actually, anybody who's using their mind in any sort of creative form, you can use your mind creatively as an intellect, uh, as a seeker of knowledge. So in that vein, I've kind of conducted what you could say are a sort of experiments, like life experiments or almost um, art installations, or you could call them temporary vows. For example, uh, for about, I can't remember how long, it was two or maybe three years or two and a half years. I didn't, didn't buy groceries. I ate food that I grew food that I gathered from trees and then preserved, or food that was given to me. And people knew about this, so people would give me food. And it was just a wonderful practice of experiencing how interconnected we all are and how, how dependent I was on everybody else for my nourishment. Here I was doing it in a, in a literal form, how I was dependent on everybody else for my nourishment, but clearly on every other level I'm dependent on everybody for my nourishment. Uh, so that was a great practice. That was a wonderful practice. I did buy a couple of things that I needed just to function like olive oil, things that people were unlikely to give me. There were little things that I would buy just to fill gaps, but, but very little. And it was also a good experience in non-attachment to not having preferences. Um, and it was great fun. It was very enjoyable. All of these sorts of uh, sort of art experiments, um, precepts, it's important to do them in a way that's joyful. And for me, they have been. Another one is becoming aware of my non-dominant hand. So I'm right-handed. So actively becoming aware of what my left hand's doing just during the day, just, you know, morning zazen when I strike the bell, just being aware of what this other hand's doing while I'm striking the bell. Because the idea is it should be sitting, you know, we, we should be sitting here with our uh, hands in, uh, in our gasho mudra. And so you take this one away and strike the bell. And this one, you know, don't want it to be floppy or go all crooked. You know, just becoming aware of the non-dominant hand in, in all sorts of situations because there's this sort of like non-dominance going on behind the scenes everywhere in our life. There's famous people with their partners in the background. There's authors of books and all the editors in the background. There's 
Zen teachers and the Sangha in the background. We have this, um, the quieter side is, is ever present and essential to everything. So that, that's another interesting practice that I've done, just becoming aware of my non-dominant hand. Um, I gave, gave up, I've, I've taken them up again now, but for a long time, not doing things like going to movies or listening to the radio or listening to music, going to coffee shops, just not doing any of those things that you would maybe put in the category of entertainment. And although that could, and not wearing civilian clothes anymore, I wear sort of Japanese summer way work clothes as my clothing, uh, unless I would put my robes on. All of these things, they actually open us up to, um, they're just great experiments, but they, they open us up to appreciating the simplicity of the present moment without embellishment. I remember reading, uh, it was Tenshin, uh, Rev Anderson, Tenshin Roshi used the word experiencing things without embellishment. And that, that really had a big impact on me. So I went through a period of time of really practicing, not embellishing, being happy with just a glass of water. I don't need it to be fizzy water. It doesn't need to be cold water. It doesn't need to be flavored water, that, that kind of thing. And just enjoying it, you know, very much an enjoyable process, not a, um, not a sense of scarcity. So uh, then in 2017, I ordained as a priest. And in the Soto tradition, ordaining as a priest requires sewing your own robes. It takes a very long time. And if we were in the same space together, I'd be able to show you the stitching, but it's, it's not easy to show you the stitching on Zoom. But very, very fine hand stitching, complex robes, all patterned a little bit like um, the rakasu that, that people sew in Diamond Sangha and in, Soto traditions and Rinzai traditions, very fine stitching. So you spend a lot of time sewing your robe, which is settling the mind and really contemplating, do I want to do this? Because uh, usually it takes a number of years to, to kind of um, really contemplate whether you want to ordain as a priest because it's a lifelong commitment to ordain. It's different for different people what that commitment is. Uh, the commitment for me definitely felt very, very significant, very full, you know, giving up partnerships, not, not, not going to have any romantic partners for the rest of my life, um, really dedicating myself to being of service in whatever way just naturally presents itself, not having to go to great lengths to find it, it just presents itself. So I ordained in 2017 and I was already living at the Zen Center in Santa Cruz, so there was lots of opportunities to be of service. It just happened because you were there with the Sangha. Then in uh, this year, the beginning of this year, I did a one month solitary retreat at a place called Land of Calm Abiding. So it was 30 days of sitting, um, fairly strict session schedule. Uh, between se sometimes seven, the first week it was seven periods of four, 40 minute periods of sitting. By the time I got to the third week, I was able to increase that to eight. So eight periods of Zazen 
for 40 minutes with sutra services and study and bowing and uh, no contact with anybody, no cell phone or Wi-Fi or anything like that. But a beautiful level of contact with plants and animals around me and with the ancestors. I felt very connected to the ancestors of our Zen lineage. Studying the sutras, I did have books, studying the sutras, reading the early sutras, you know, which are the words of, of Shakyamuni Buddha. And just having the time to really immerse myself in reading some of the sutras was wonderful. I don't think of myself as a very scholarly person. Uh, I don't tend to study very much. I tend to just get inspired by small snippets and then they inform me and I carry a small snippet around with me for a period of time and then another one jumps out at me. So having a period of time to study in a more sustained way was wonderful. And I did that solitary retreat in uh, preparation for um, a transmission ceremony, which is sort of um, in the Soto tradition, you then sew a brown robe, then you're a fully transmitted priest, which means that I'm able to offer Jukai. I can teach independently, offer Jukai and can ordain priests. So uh, a big responsibility. And at the same time, I think it's very important for us to know that these words like priest and ordination and transmission, these are just, these are just concepts. These are just words. There is actually no such thing as a priest. There's no such thing as ordination. It's just an idea that we have made and we use, we use words. And if we can really understand that there is no such thing as a priest and that I'm not a priest, then we can, then we can be a priest. Then we can do it because we don't get hooked. We don't get attached to any concept of it. We can do it with a freedom, with a tracelessness, with a seamlessness, without residue. Then we can do it without residue. And if priests can do it without residue, then people who interact with them can also interact without residue, you know, and then it can just be, it can be very, very beneficial. So that's how I see the role as now being an, uh, a transmitted priest. It is a responsibility. It is a great opportunity. It is a wonderful thing. And it is also nothing at all. It's also nothing at all. Um, I think I did have one last quote that I wanted to, to read. I was just reading some Suzuki Roshi this morning and I came across this. Before we understand the idea of emptiness, everything seems to exist substantially. But after we realize the emptiness of things, everything becomes real, but not substantial. And I'll just read that again. Before we understand the idea of emptiness, everything seems to exist substantially. But after we realize the emptiness of things, everything becomes real, not substantial. And we see this in the enthusiasm and the energy in 
mature practitioners, they love the world. They care about the world. They care about each other because it's real, but it's not substantial. And there's, there's a difference. There's a real difference between appreciating the wondrousness of this abundant world without getting hooked on thinking each piece of it is, uh, exists independently. It's just a mysterious interconnected web beyond any comprehension. So thank you for all listening. Deep listening is a very wonderful practice. And I really hope that you will comment or ask questions because I think in many ways this is where it this is where talks can be most vital is in the in the spontaneous communication that that uh, that happens. So please comment or ask a question. Uh, if not for yourself, but, but maybe because somebody else maybe would like to ask it, but is too shy. So you can ask it on their behalf. Um, Nettie, um, I really appreciated your last quote um, about sub substantiality and reality. I don't know how to explain it, but I really understood what you were trying to say, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, Kate. Uh, thank you, Nettie. That was uh, fascinating to hear your very varied and uh, wonderful uh, life and challenging, of course, and spiritual journey, of course, most of us have been on for some time. Um, you mentioned East Gippsland, and this is a bit of a practical question. I lived in East Gippsland uh, in the late 70s and founded a community there which was based on ecology and yoga and it was my ex-husband was American I just wondered if you lived near it was north of Buchan called Ontos and then it was actually sold half of it was sold to a Tibetan Buddhist monastery so they bought the whole facilities the cabins the kitchens the beautiful mud brick yoga hall and um, it became the Siba Tibetan monastery so I have a little bit of background in 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 <laughs> that area, which was uh, life-changing for me, of course. So I wondered if um, you had any connection with that down there in East Gippsland. I remember it. I remember Ontos very well. I, I never went there. I was in Goongara, mm -hmm. which was north of Orbost, still is north of Orbost. <laughs> um, and I had actually hoped to, when I ca came back here, I'm now in Canberra, to maybe turn my property there, I, I'm a part owner of a cooperative there, into a Zen retreat centre, but we lost everything in the fires of the, the 2019-20 fires. We lost everything there, got completely burnt to an utter crisp. Yes. But didn't lose the actual land, of course. The land itself is still there, but yes. uh, doesn't feel like now I would have the strength to rebuild there at this point. Yes, yes, yes. Ontos, or when it, when it was Ontos, lost its kitchen, the big kitchen, big facility, mm -hmm. meditation hall, which was downstairs. And the Tibetan community rebuilt that. 
-hmm. and they did wonderful mindfulness retreats for years but i believe they're selling it this is a practical question but it's actually they're selling that property oh yeah. so <clears throat> i'm not sure where lama chodan he was based in canberra as well so i'm not sure where where they're going to be based but uh, interesting connection yeah i very much enjoyed your story thank you yeah. <laughs> stories are wonderful yeah. <laughs> even if they're just stories <laughs> yeah you know and just just on the fires uh i was very grateful that i had both a buddhist practice and had been a climate activist for a long time because i was completely unsurprised and not traumatized by the losing of everything it was completely in accord with reality that my house got burned down it just totally made sense like why would why would one get incredulous about that it, it's just you know somebody's house is going to get burnt down and there's no reason why it shouldn't be mine so uh, i was glad for my practice that that didn't create um distress in the mind yes absolutely non-attachment <laughs> yeah yeah that's right yeah non-attachment yes david um yeah hi thanks i really enjoyed your storytelling and um your sort of honesty and directness and i'm going to be honest and say i'm pretty poor student and I don't even remember what the name of your talk or the theme of it was but I was just sort of following you along so and really soaking that in I just wondered if you could bring me back to the maybe the uh, intention or the the name of the the talk that you gave and a little bit more about it just to help me anchor that um, lovely sense that you gave of you know what you were talking about in the moment or yeah what you were conveying yeah, they're called way-seeking mind talks. It's often common, uh, I don't know if it's in all different Soto traditions or just in the Suzuki Roshi Soto tradition, I'm not really sure, but often when people are invited to give their first Dharma talk, you know, a senior student being invited to give a talk for the first time, that's traditionally the talk they give. So it's the talk of, you know, how they got to where they are and it's very skillful because in a way it's an easy talk to give you just have to share about yourself so for someone who's a little nervous giving their first talk it, they can just tell the story of how they got to where they are um, but it also serves the purpose of inspiring people to see the kind of um, windy way in which we get to where we get you know most of us come to zen practice with some usually some wish to be relieved of some of our suffering in whichever way that tends to manifest that seems to be one of the most common ways that people come to practice they may have had a hardship or they just have a restless a restlessness restless just unsatisfactoriness as robert aiken used to say um, and they come to practice you know and then it becomes more than that often for people then they start really wanting you know having a deep aspiration to have some sense of what is reality what is this that i experience every day so it widens from the personal to something broader uh, so i i just thought seeing i've not met you any of you really before and uh, new back into australia and and it's, it is a little unusual to have a diamond sangha teacher ordained as a priest it's having the two different lineages it's not that common uh, in conversation with Andrew, it just felt like that would be 
maybe an interesting thing for your sangha. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome. Could I ask a question, Nettie? Yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. I'm uh, just wondering about your your koan group. Is that is that open or closed? Oh, that's open. It's open to anyone, and uh, there's people that have been in it the whole time, you know. So, but it really doesn't require any background. And I'm very clear for, with people who are studying koans in the Diamond Sangha tradition that this is not about doing presentations, and it, sh it doesn't seem to be in any way disruptive. Um, for people, if they are doing the traditional koan study, it's not disruptive because we're not going, we're not, that's not where we're interacting with the cases. We're interacting with them in a different way. Um, it's only a small group, usually sort of six or, six or so people. We meet for 40 minutes. We spend about 10 minutes in breakout rooms in pairs to make sure everyone gets to talk and share. And then we just share together and it's, you know, pretty heartfelt personal our personal interaction with the cons we spent three weeks on each case and uh, we started with the gateless barrier and we're now about two-thirds way through um, the blue cliff record because that's how long it takes <laughs> if you spend three weeks on each con it, it takes you know more than a year to it takes a couple of years to to get through a book mm. and, uh, that sounds like a really really uh, a good alternative way to engage with koan practice. Uh, thank you for yeah, yeah. telling us and, about that. And I didn't um, do it because I wanted to do anything different. I, in a lot of ways, I think I'm just a traditionalist. I really am happy to keep with the forms I'm trained in. But my circumstance was just that I was going from a Diamond Sangha tradition into a Soto tradition, and I didn't want to leave it behind. And so that was just a way to bring it back in. And here in Canberra, um, well, the class continues because it's on Zoom anyway, and it's on my website. Anyone can go have a look. Uh, but here now in Canberra, I can definitely, in my own way, bring the two traditions together. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Nettie. So have you just created this new um, centre in Canberra? Is that what's happened? Well, yes, but it's not really me that created it. There were a couple of people in Canberra who had met me sometime a number of years ago and contacted me before I'd actually even got back here and offered me a space or offered us a space to use, a beautiful space to use rent-free for quite a few years. And so that's what we're doing. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've been in lockdown for since I got here, really. I think I, I think I got two weeks here before lockdown happened. So I haven't got to meet hardly any people in person. But mm -hmm. we did get enough time to actually start renovating the space and transforming the space. And there are photos of it even up on my website now. Um, but in two weeks, we're going to begin sitting in there just we, you're in Canberra, you're allowed to have two people visit another household. So we're going to have two of, two of us can go and sit in the Zendo with the two people that live there. Um, and we'll, we'll do it hybrid as well so that people can also join in on Zoom. Yeah, that's really lovely. And um, actually, 
my stepmom who lives in Canberra, her name is Nettie as well. <laughs> so when I'm in Canberra, when I'm able to travel again and go and visit her, short for Annette. <laughs> Isn't it just amazing? I mean, just in this little conversation here, we've already found a number of particular <laughs> connections. That is so interesting. Yeah, well, we also do Zazen every morning at 6 a.m. on Zoom, and that's every day except Sundays. Oh, I mean, any, anybody can jo wow. join that. And we have people from the States that join that most. It's actually equally people from the States as from Australia. Oh, that's that's awesome. And I'm really interested in, you know, your approach of having done the koan training and then moving into Soto Zen and using koans in a different way. Um, I myself have done Soto practice, but then I just recently started doing the koan thing with a Sanbo Zen teacher. So, yeah, I'm very interested in how they might come together. That's really cool. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Yes, David. Just quickly, what's the what's the website you've referred to as your website or is it Twining Vines? Or? You can go to twiningvines.net or netiparek, that's my last name, .com. Both will get you there. So was, well, I'll, David um, and everybody here, I'll send an email out to everybody who's attending this morning with the, the link for Nettie's website, yeah. And uh, and uh, if you want to gift a little donation, please feel free to do so. So I'll, I'll send that out after we finish today. And once we get, get going, I'm looking forward to inviting Andrew to give a talk to us. So maybe we can be like uh, sister sanghas. Beautiful. Yes, Angela. Um, hi, look, thank you, Nettie. I really, uh, really enjoyed your talk um, and your story and everything that you've shared. Um, and for me, I think one of the, um, the aspects that spoke to me the most is when you talk about um, the fact that we don't know anything. Um, and I think to me that is the greatest form of um, non-separation um, that we have, especially at the present time that we all have ideas about things and opinions and the rest of it, um, and a lot of them quite sort of divergent and polarised at the moment. So I think it's such a good message, that whole thing, that, that yes, we really don't know anything and that what's supposedly real is not real. Um, it's a bit of a mind twister, but I think it's, it's, it's really useful and it really speaks to me at this time. So, and, and that the idea of, um, I think, humility and... Um, uh, curiosity and openness that you spoke about. I think if we can find those things in our lives, you know, we'll be pretty happy. So, yeah, I really enjoyed your talk, Nettie, and thank you so much. And um, thank you from me to Nettie. It's a great, great story. Great to hear it. And I can really relate to the trials and tribulations of life and how it brings us to some better place as such. <laughs> um, just just a little poem, little, a little thing that this discourse on emptiness, which I just so love, um, thanks for talking of this. And this is some, just what reminded me 
of these words, which is um, the wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection. The water has no mind to receive their image, which was something that um, a Sufi teacher loved and quoted about emptiness. Yeah. Thank you. And creation. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thank you. And maybe in a way, a little, in a less poetic way, but that I was alluding to about if we don't have the mind of a priest, then we can be a priest. Yes. If we don't, if we don't have a mind of things being sacred and holy, then they can be sacred and holy. Mm -hmm. Same with emptiness. If we don't get caught in the ideas of emptiness, we can mm -hmm. see the emptiness of everything. Mm -hmm. And really mm. rejoice in that rejoice mm. In mm. it's like food really <laughs> yeah thank you anybody who hasn't spoken want to leap out there and say something Yes. I'd just like to ask Nettie a short question. Um, you speak of priest, which seems very masculine. I'm wondering if there's a, a female uh, appropriate name for a priest. You call yourself a priest, but I will see that it's probably in the Catholic uh, Church, you know, a priest is so masculine. It, 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 would you be recognized? What would be the feminine uh, counterpart to priest in, in the Soto tradition? Well, you know, it's one of the things that I really appreciate about Zen in the West, um, in the United States, and I think also here in Australia, is that there is a much greater balance now of uh, men and men to women. The ratio, I don't know what it is in Australia, but in the United States, priests really refers to, it's gender neutral, really. Men and women are priests, and increasingly there are more women who are brown robes. This is what it sort of term people use for people who wear brown robes um transmitted priests there's more and more women and so priest seems to just have lost its masculine connotation in the soto zen tradition in the states and i think that that's wonderful that that's happening um i guess some people could if they wanted to could use a word like priestess but in a way it feels the ideal thing is for it to, to not need it to be marked as masculine or feminine, that it, that it truly is actually just you're a priest, like I'm a priest, and it uh, doesn't have anything to do with, with my gender. But I think we can only say that if it's actually really happening. If people try to say, oh, it's a gender neutral term, it just happens that 90% of them are men, <laughs> well, then we've got a bit of, then there's, that is not reflecting that's not reflecting reality as best as we can understand it. It's not reflecting it very well. But uh, in the States, there's as many women priests as men these days, or there seems to be. I've never really looked specifically at the statistics. But I'm glad that you brought it up, and I do think it's, it's, it's very important to have more women in these roles. But they also have to be 
women who have done the work too. So, you know, it's, it can't be a shortcut. We just need to make sure there's, there's a way for women to do it. And I did mention a little that I, I've raised three children and most of that time has been as a single mother. So I've had to work as well. Uh, and my teachers did find ways to work with me being in that situation. You know, I couldn't always do, um, sometimes I would have to leave session for a period of time for a couple of sits in the middle to attend to something, picking a child up from school or whatever it might have been. And so it's important for the male teachers to work with the conditions that women often find themselves in, which is often not the same conditions that men find themselves in. Um, yes, absolutely. And I yes. think the name um, priestess is, is a beautiful term, but in a way it has more of a connotation of being sort of new agey, whereas I can hear that priest is a bit more orthodox in, in, in your own tradition. So you've explained it really well. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you for your question. Very, very valuable thank discussion you. to have. Nettie? Yes. Um, um, I really liked in the beginning you talked about the practice of being aware of what your left hand is doing. I, I, yeah, I, I really like that. So thank you very much for that. Also, being aware of where the active and the passive is in other things as well. So thank you. Thank you for that. Maybe just to share a little bit of what I'm doing right now in that kind of regard, in terms of a practice that's a non, a little less conventional sort of a practice. Um, I spend an hour and a half every day doing either running or mountain biking in natural settings and in Canberra. This city is an amazing city. It is far more beautiful than I ever imagined. There is green bands all the way through it but also it takes very little time to be completely outside of the city because of the nature of how it came about being a, a fully designed city not built on a pre-existing uh it was just farmland um so every day and so that's obviously for exercise but in some ways more importantly i think with the climate emergency that we're in that we can be in natural spaces and witness them and honor them and just be with them, not have them not be invisible, have them be uh, present in our eyes and our ears in our senses on our skin to do that. I think is, is really important right now because we're losing it. We're losing the natural world. You know, plants are becoming extinct. Insects are becoming extinct. Animals are losing their habitat. And just the mere going into those spaces and appreciating them and loving them, just being in them. There's something right about that. And again, it, I can't really logically explain why there's something right about that, but I know there's something right about that. So that's what I do, do right now. And it doesn't matter what the weather is and it doesn't matter what my schedule is. I need to do that an hour and a half minimum every day. And so I do that. So that's my current practice which I began 18 months ago and the only day I, I couldn't do it was when I was on an aeroplane flying from America to Australia and when I was in quarantine in Sydney I had to do it differently so when I was in quarantine 
I got a stationary bike and I rode my stationary bike looking out the window for an hour and a half. That, that's how I did it when I was in quarantine. Mm. So all of us can come up with these sorts of things that suit our personality, whatever that might be. Could be 15 minutes of reading before bed each night. I mean, it can be anything, but it's, I think it's interesting to see ourselves as, as an artwork and what we and see ourselves as sort of doing art installations it's it adds it adds um, some quality to what we're doing with our lives yes thank you for sharing that Nettie. i think that really calls to a lot of a lot of our members and friends here in ozen that that calling to to witness country to get out in the country and uh we've had some conversations about that and Maybe who knows? We could we could do a, a retreat uh, in some of the national parks, uh, which are quite wonderful up here as well, for a day or two. Mm. And I also think there is a way to be involved in activism that is not too um, that doesn't cause too much turbulence in the mind. It, it's always a balance between the stillness of practice and the activity of being in the world. Uh, and as a priest, I'm, I'm working on how to do that. So next week, I'm going to be involved in an action at Parliament House, but I'll be in robes as a priest a little differently to other people, but still being there, asking government to take more action on the climate, um, to divest from fossil fuels and so on, and trying to sort of find this balance of how do we have activity with its stillness in it, or do, how do we have stillness with activity in it? That's really beautiful. Wonderful.